This is the TSN MMA Show with Aaron Bronstetter and Bazooka Joe Valtellini. Welcome to another edition of the TSN MMA Show. I'm your host, Aaron Bronstetter, not joined as I am usually by Bazooka Joe Valtellini as he is heading to Arnhem in the Netherlands to call Glory Collision 3, headlined by Rico Verhoeven, who is on this week's TSN MMA Show interview edition, cheap plug, and Jamal Bensidi. Should be an awesome fight. Bensidi looked great in the, uh, the tournament, although he's been on the shelf for about two years, so eager to see how he looks in perhaps the biggest opportunity of his career, although he's already had an opportunity to beat Rico Verhoeven, but we saw what happened there, so now it is currently the biggest opportunity of his career because he can get a win here and uh, become the new champion, which would mean that Rico Verhoeven's eight-year heavyweight championship streak would come to an end. But let's talk about that. Eight years, wow. Eight-year championship reign in the heavyweight division of kickboxing. That is not easy to do. Uh, Rico Verhoeven deserves... The, the highest degree of success for being able to pull that off. I mean, look at every other division in glory. Has any other champion had that longevity? And you're talking about the division with the heaviest hitters. So good on him. But, uh, yeah, that's coming up this weekend. You got UFC Fight Night Costa versus Vittori coming up this weekend. We got a lot of news to talk about. So let's get right to it. Why don't we start off with this past weekend's UFC Fight Night card, headlined by Norma Dumont and Aspen Ladd. Now, this might have been the worst main event on paper of the year, and it might have ended up being the worst main event to watch of the year. No coincidence there. You know, sometimes there will be a main event where people say, ah, oh, this wasn't a very good main event, not, not great, and all that, and then it ends up really over-delivering, and people will be like, ah, see, you can't judge a, a card by what, you know, by what it looks like on paper. And, I mean, a lot of the time that's correct. But this time around, you look at this card, eh, the only ranked fighter on the card was Ladd, who wasn't even ranked in the division she was fighting in. But uh, Norma Dumont ended up really making it look easy against Aspen Ladd. And I guess the big narrative coming out of this was the coaching advice of Aspen Ladd's coach and boyfriend, Jim West. And frankly, I mean, watching it, it seemed a little bit demeaning. It seemed, uh, you know, a little bit harsh. But at the same time, we're talking about the coach who, between rounds, when Ladd faced Yana Kunitskaya pumped her up, and she got a quick knockout in the third round as a result. So far be it for me to question the methods of Jim West in that circumstance. But that being said, it's a bit of a, a tricky situation when you have your boyfriend in your corner and he's your head coach. You know, it's, it's, it must be hard for him to do that because, you know, of the relationship that he has with Aspen Ladd. But at the same time, he also knows how to get the best out of Aspen Ladd. So they are in the room together for hours and hours every day training. And then I guess beyond that as well, because I, I don't know if they live together or what the situation is there. So they know each other better than anybody else on the planet, I would say, at, at this stage in their life. So if that's what he's got to do to inspire Aspen Ladd to, to get it together, then, you know, who are we to cast aspersions on that? Not to mention that a lot of the time when you're watching a broadcast, there are commercials in between and you don't really get to see the coaching advice in the corners. So the sample size of the coach, the coaching that we actually have, not to mention the amount of Coaches that are speaking to their fighter in uh, what we would deem to be a foreign language is also worth noting because we don't know what they're saying. So I think we need to, you know, take a step back and, and realize that what Jim West has done in the past in the corner has worked for Aspen Ladd. Now, what Aspen Ladd does from here, I don't know. This was not a good loss for her. This was, this was a win that she needed. She was, she's been on the shelf for some time. She keeps having fights falling through. Finally gets the opportunity to face... Norma Dumont is not very established in the UFC. I think that uh, when you look at Norma Dumont, 
we're talking about really a true featherweight in a division that does not have a lot of true featherweights. I mean, how many legitimate true featherweights are in the UFC? Norma Dumont, Felicia Spencer, and that's probably it. Like, in terms of natural featherweights. Because, I mean, Amanda Nunes has way more bantamweight fights. I wouldn't call her a natural featherweight. So, really, I mean, we're talking about two, maybe three. And a lot of people would say Aspen Ladd is a natural featherweight. I actually believe she is a bantamweight, even though she's had these weight-cutting issues in the past. I think that in terms of her frame, in terms of her build, you saw her with Dumont. Dumont looked a lot bigger than she did. Aspen Ladd is probably a natural bantamweight. She just has had issues in the past cutting weight. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with female biology. But at the same time, you know, I'm not going to let her off the hook. She's lost, missed weight, and when you miss weight, they often force you to move, you know, force you to move up a weight class. But uh, I, I would not be surprised if Aspen Ladd's next fight is in the bantamweight. And I also wouldn't be surprised if she makes weight for it and, and makes it look easy because I think this has been kind of a lesson for her. You know, Dana White said it wasn't really a reward for Aspen Ladd. And ultimately, he ended up being right because she, looked, she didn't look good over the course of five rounds. I think it lowered her stock significantly. She went down in the bantamweight rankings even though she lost a featherweight fight. So ultimately, she did get a payday, which is good. But... Uh, you know, lost the main event, fought five rounds, didn't look great, really didn't have any strong moments of success in that fight that made it look like she was on the on the on track to win the fight. So, ended up not being a great look for Aspen Ladd. And uh, again, I, I think that the thing with her coach, you know, people can judge that individually, but I think that a coach knows their fighter better than anybody else. And I think in a situation like this, where they actually have a relationship beyond a, the coach-student relationship they probably know each other better than any other person out there. So, you know, that said, I think that Aspen Lai having to cut weight, having a terrible weight cut and then turning around and fighting two weeks later, I'm not sure you have her best interests in mind if, if that's something that you're going to do. But that said, you know, she said that she was going to take the fight. It's her choice, I guess, to take that fight if it's offered to her. Um, it's nothing that I believe was the healthiest move, but... Again, I'm not, I'm not in the room. I don't know what's going on. So it's hard for me to, again, cast dispersions on that. Co-main event, Andrei Arlovsky defeats Carlos Felipe and improves to 4-1 and one in his last five. We're talking about the same Andrei Arlovsky who was the heavyweight champion, what, in, like the, in the 2000s? Like, well, what, what year was he the UFC heavyweight champion? His last UFC heavyweight championship fight was 15 years ago. And since then, he has been, you know, gone, gone to other divisions, was in Affliction for a Cup of Coffee, Elite XC, Strike Force, Pro Elite, 1FC. I don't even remember him competing at 1FC. World Series of Fighting. Guy's been everywhere between his fights in the UFC from his, I guess, first tenure in the UFC to his second tenure in the UFC. So, fought at UFC 28. <laughs> and here we are at almost UFC 10. 280 coming up, you know, somewhat soon. That's, uh, that's a pretty impressive. Or I guess 270 is coming soon, but 280 is next year, right? I mean, we're talking about UFC 28. He'll still be in the UFC when UFC 280 rolls around, most likely. I mean, he's 4-1. and one. I don't see him going away anytime soon. But, uh, yeah, a nice win for him over Carlos Felipe. You know, 4-1, and one, pretty unbelievable to see uh, him continue to have this kind of success in the UFC. And I love it. I, I You know, Andre Arlovsky is a nice guy. I've always enjoyed uh, whenever I've had the opportunity to interview him and chat with him. Uh, Jim Miller defeats Eric Gonzalez by KO. I think the odds on a KO prop for Jim Miller was about 10 to 1. He's usually finishing guys uh, by submission or winning decisions, but he gets a knockout here 
over the newcomer Eric Gonzalez. And, uh, you know, Gonzalez hit up with some good shots in the first round, but uh, Miller sticks around, ends up getting the KO. And speaking of sticking around, he also wants to stick around. He has the most UFC fights in UFC history, in the promotions history. He's fought at UFC 100 and UFC 200. Now he wants to fight at UFC 300, he says is his goal. So UFC 300 would, I guess, be in two years from now? Yeah, two years from now. There you go. It could be, th- or is it three years from now? Something along. Yeah, I mean, how old is Jim Miller? He'd probably be younger than Andre Arlovsky in three years. Yeah, he's 38. He'd probably be, he's around Andre Arlovsky's age in three years. So it's been definitely a possibility. And Jim Miller, you know, he's been in a lot of fights, but I don't think he's taken that much damage. Like, how many times has Jim Miller been knocked out in his UFC career? Take a look. He's been knocked out twice in his UFC career. And were those particularly, well, the Dan Hooker knockout was pretty bad, but that was, that was three years ago. That was that crazy knee. And then uh, knockout from Donald Cerrone in 2014. So this isn't a guy who's taken an unbelievable amount of damage. I believe he can stick around until U300. And I'd love to see a Jim Miller, you know, one of the uh, elder statesmen of the sport. And, uh, and a good guy overall. Enjoyed speaking with him. Manon Fioro defeats Myra Bueno Silva by decision. I mean, Fioro is just a, a dynamic striker for this division. But I think that what we saw in this fight was that as the competition is going to get harder, she's not going to look as good as she did in those first two fights. I think that she's got a lot of talent. I think she's, a, again, a dynamic striker. And I thought her ground game looked good when she was on top. But the one thing we haven't seen for Fioro is what it will be like if she's on bottom. And I thought that if Myra Bueno Silva was able to get her down in this fight, we might have seen a submission for Silva. That, that's really what her best path was. And I actually thought that it showed a, a pretty low fight IQ for Fioro to grapple with Silva in the first place, to even take her down. Because Silva could have snagged something off her back. I, I truly believe that. I think that Fioro had a, a big advantage on the feet. And I don't know if she uses the takedown to kind of gather herself because she throws so much volume. But I thought that that was a red flag for Fioro, who I've been very high on in her UFC. I thought that that was uh, something that uh, was troubling to see, honestly, when when you look at her career trajectory. I think that that might hinder her trajectory when you look at a decision such as that. Nate Landwehr defeats Ludovic Klein. This was a a very big surprise in my eyes. I mean, I've always known how good Nate Landwehr is, but I thought Ludovic Klein was going to really be a top prospect in the UFC. And uh, not only did Landwehr get a submission in the third round, but Landwehr was hanging with him the whole time. Probably would have won a decision had it gone to the cards. So uh, kudos to Nate Landwehr. And this guy's a lot of fun on the mic. He's got that southern accent. I I mentioned on Twitter that he sounds like a, a heel from WCW or NWA back in like the 80s or 90s. But uh, hope to see more continued success for Nate Langer. It's a lot of fun to watch. Bruno Silva defeats Andrew Sanchez by TKO in the third round. And one thing I'd like for people to do is go back and watch the first round between Bruno Silva and Andrew Sanchez. Sanchez had about three and a half minutes of control, but Silva won the first round on two judges' scorecards. And most people think that that's not a good scorecard, but it is a good scorecard. And now hear me out. If you go back and watch that first round, let's pull up the stats here, actually. Even though stats don't mean everything uh, when it comes to the uh, UFC, not necessarily uh, the biggest indicator of what's, uh, what's happening. So this is Bruno Silva. There's two Bruno Silvas in the UFC, apparently. So Bruno Silva defeats Andrew Sanchez. Let's just look strictly at the first round stats, because I think the second round every judge gave to Sanchez. So, significant strikes in the first round. 8 of 23 for Bruno Silva, 4 of 7 for Andrew Sanchez. But let's look at the ground strikes, because Andrew Sanchez had, I think it was 3 minutes of control in that round, if you go back and look. I don't know, yeah, there it is, 3, three minutes and 25 seconds of control in that in the round. I don't know if that's exclusively top control, it could have been clinch control. Ground strikes for Andrew Sanchez in that fight, 
one significant ground strike. Now that's important because the way that the scoring criteria works in mixed martial arts is that the number one thing the judges look for, and 99% of the time this will be the thing that is the most that, that is given the most consideration. The other 1% of the time, it would be if all things are equal. If, people, if the judge is like, wow, well, the striking was basically even, we've got to go to the secondary criteria, which would be um, control, I believe, is the secondary criteria. So control is almost never looked at um, when you're assessing a round if you're a judge. So if you're going strictly on damage, Silva landed double the amount of strikes as, as Andrew Sanchez, and when Sanchez had control, he did not do anything with it. He had one ground, one significant ground strike. In fact, in the second round, where Sanchez had four minutes and 30 seconds of control, he only landed four of four ground strikes. So Silva actually landed more strikes on the ground, even though he was on bottom, than Andrew Sanchez. Sanchez landed six of six takedowns. And uh, in terms of total strikes, had double the amount of total strikes and the same amount of significant strikes. So I understand Sanchez winning the second round. But the first round, even though Sanchez has top control for three and a half minutes or whatever, any sort of control for three and a half minutes, it does not matter at all in the eyes of the judges if he is not landing damage. It has no bearing on the round whatsoever, unless it goes to the secondary criteria, which I mentioned happens about 1% of the time if you're a judge, based on how the scoring criteria is written. So if you're listening to this show, I imagine that you're an educated mixed martial arts fan, but a lot of people don't understand the scoring criteria, and I was one of those people. This year, I took a uh, judging course so I could understand the scoring criteria more and understand what judges are looking for when they're watching around. And we can talk about this as well when it came to last night's main uh, for the Contender Series, uh, a situation where I didn't agree with the judges. But again, I, I digress. Let's talk about this round. So Silva landed the more damaging strikes in this round despite it only taking place on the feet for whatever, under two minutes, with Sanchez having top control for the remaining of it. That's what a judge is looking for. They're looking for those eight strikes. They're looking, you've got eight strikes to four in significant strikes. Who is landing more strikes in the round? Who's landing the more damaging strikes in the round? Who landed more damage? Who did more damage? And then a lot of people will talk about effective grappling. Now, what effective grappling is, is not getting a takedown. Getting a takedown is not effective grappling, uh, based on, again, the letter of the, of the law from the scoring criteria. Effective grappling is when you take someone down with a big slam and you, you, you get damage with that particular takedown. That's the only way that a takedown really scores in terms of effective grappling. If Andrew Sanchez lifts Silva up and slams him down, that is considered effective grappling. If Andrew Sanchez is looking for submissions and, and gets into a position where he has a submission locked in that is doing some sort of discernible damage, that is effective grappling. So let's say he throws up an armbar, Silva needs to explode out of it, figure out a way out. Sanchez, you know, let's say he's going for um, a head and arm choke and, and sinks it in and Silva has to escape. Let's say that Sanchez somehow gets the back, throws up, throws in a rear naked choke. That's effective grappling. Let's say Silva from bottom grabs Andrew Sanchez's neck or, or attempts a Von Flew choke or anything along those lines where the other fighter needs to escape from it and it's doing damage to them. That is considered effective grappling. Effective grappling is not passing. Effective grappling is not a simple takedown. Effective grappling is not grabbing someone in the clinch. None of that is effective grappling. Important to note if you're scoring around at home. And I'm going to continue to be an advocate for this because people will continue to tell me on social media, oh, you, you don't know how to score fights. You don't know, you don't know how to score rounds. That, that's a terrible scorecard. Have fun because I will ignore you 
I'm not going to block you unless you're rude about it, but I will ignore you because unless you have taken a course or you have read the scoring criteria and have done a deep dive on this, you're probably looking at the old scoring criteria where takedowns matter, where control matters, where top control is a big deal, where, you know, none of that matters in the new scoring criteria. So please keep that in mind if you're watching these fights. Because even though Sanchez has the top control, and everybody said Sanchez was up two rounds going into the third, except for the actual judges who know what they're watching. In terms of, listen, I'm not going to say you don't know what you're watching, but they know what they're watching with the scoring criteria in mind. I'll just, uh, let me put it that way. So, had Bruno Silva eked out a third round, like let's say he had, uh, let's say Sanchez hung in there and survived the round, and it wasn't a 10 8 for whatever reason, although that looked like it was on pace for a 10 8. Bruno Silva still would have won that fight, even though he got taken down seven times in the first two rounds. Still would have won that fight. So, it's important for, not only for, for people watching at home, but for fighters to know that if you get a takedown, you need to do something. You need to land strikes. Even if they're little peppering shots, you need to be busy and you need to be showing that you are using your position to land damage. Because that's the only way that position matters to a judge. If you're, if you're passing, if you're advancing. Another good example of this is uh, Movlet Chaibalayev against Brandon Lofnane. One of the judges gave a 29-28 to Lofnane. Now, I don't agree with that scorecard, but if you go back and watch... When Chaibalayev is trying to advance position, he's moving around on top, he's got the takedowns. Lofnane's landing elbows from bottom. That's doing damage. That's what a judge is looking for. They're not looking for the guy who's passing. They're not looking for the guy who's trying to get into a better position to land strikes. You can look for better positions all you want. If you don't do anything with that position, you're not going to win rounds. That's the way that the, the scoring criteria works. So, let's move on. But I, I, just, I, I thought it was really important to go over this particular fight because it's a perfect example of a guy that is getting takedowns is hanging out on top and is not doing any damage, and, and the judges are rewarding the guy who's on bottom, who's doing more damage, or did more damage earlier in the round in this case, because Bruno Silva didn't land ground strikes in that round. He was just trying to escape. If you look at the actual ground strikes in the first round for significant strikes, it was 1 of 1 for Sanchez and 0 of 0 for Silva. So Silva won that round entirely based on the more damaging strikes before he got taken down. Again, very important when you're looking at fights going forward. All right, let's, uh, let's move on to uh, the next couple of fights, Danny Roberts. And here's another one. <laughs> here's another one. Danny Roberts defeats Ramazan Emiev. And I had the fight scored for Roberts, and people freaked out about this. They freaked out about this, this particular fight. So let me explain the, the methodology there as well, because this is a tricky one. You look at the round-by-round -round strikes. Emiev outlands Roberts 7-4 to in the first round. I scored that round for Emiev. One of the judges scored it for Roberts. I don't agree with that. But again, I, neither here nor there. There's not a lot of stuff happening. So you have to really assess those strikes, strike per strike, to try to figure out who's doing the most damage. And you look at the control. MEF landed a takedown, had one minute of control. Second round. Here's where it gets tricky. MEF outlands Roberts 13-7 to in significant strikes. But not all strikes are created equal. So you can say MEF landed almost double the amount of strikes and attempted a submission and, and all that. That's great. But the judges' cage side and, and myself watching from home looked at the strikes that were thrown, and the strikes that Robert threw were more significant than the ones that Emmy have landed in terms of damage. So that's what the judges are looking for. They're like, they're not, they don't have the stats in front of them. They're not looking at, they're, they're not like counting each significant strike. They're assessing damage. That is their job. They're watching each round and assessing damage. 
and trying to figure out who is getting who is landing more damage. Now I think I thought the third round was was again it's only twenty three to twenty in significant strikes for Roberts, but I thought that Roberts won that round pretty much hands down. I just thought he was landing the more damaging strikes and he landed more of them. And again, that doesn't really matter. And if he's landing more of them, what matters is the immediate impact, the immediate damage of of each strike. And that's why I think Roberts wins this fight. If you go back and watch the second round and look at the significant strikes, Roberts is landing the heavier, more damaging strikes. And one thing that a referee, or sorry, a judge rather, will take into consideration going into fights, a lot of people don't know this, they're going to look at the reputation of each fighter. They know that Roberts is more of a striking-based fighter. This is a guy who um, has a, a knockout win over Zalim Imadayev in 2019. He's a guy that's knocked out uh, Oliver Enkamp in the first round, knocked out Bobby Nash. He has several knockout wins. And then you look at Emiev's UFC tenure, every fight's gone to a decision. So when, when they're looking at, at strikes, they do have it in the back of their mind that Roberts is more of a striking-based fighter and that the strikes that he's landing are, are more damaging than a guy who has not gotten a finish in the UFC. These are things that are taken into consideration. So uh, that, that's, I guess it was 29-28 on one scorecard for Roberts. 29-28 for Emiev on one scorecard, and 30-27 for Roberts on one scorecard. And again, I had a 29-28 for Roberts, but... And a lot of people were... And uh, I'll give Bilal Muhammad credit. Bilal Muhammad called me out and said, you don't know what you're watching. And I said, I sent him a message and said, hey, let me talk to you. I'll explain what, why he won that round. And, and I had a great conversation with Bilal on, uh, on Monday. We had a nice, just like a nice casual chat. Not, not an interview, but like I, just, I spoke to him and, we, we, and I explained to him what the judges are looking for. And a lot, of the, a lot of fighters and coaches don't really know the scoring criteria per se, like, you know, based on the letter of the law, based on how, how it's written and, and based on what judges are looking for. So this is another great example, Roberts versus MBF. You can go back and watch it. Watch, just watch the second round to tell me, if you, if you want to hit me up on Twitter, tell me what you think. Maybe I've changed your mind. Maybe I haven't. Very close round. I'm like, you know, I'm not saying that this was a clear win for Roberts. It was very, very close. It's one of those ones where the judge has to make a judgment call. And that's why they're the judge. Luana Carolina defeats Lupita Godinez by decision. Um, I agreed with this decision. It was unanimous, 29-28. Good on Lupita moving up a weight class. And uh, when the fight was announced, I, I was leaning towards Godinez. And then I saw her on the scale. I think she weighed in at 121 and a half. And I said, you know what? Luana's going to be way bigger than her. Luana's missed weight before at 125 pounds. She's a pretty big flyweight. And Godinez is obviously undersized. She's coming in at 121. She's probably entering the cage at 121. I'm guessing Carolina entered the cage probably at around 133 to 138, anywhere in that range. She was going to be longer, taller. I didn't like what I saw. I didn't pick Carolina or anything, but I, it was enough to scare me off of Lupita Godinez. Dana Batgarel. I'm going to stop sleeping on this guy because Brandon Davis is not an easy guy to finish, and he finished him in two minutes. So uh, shout out to Dana Batgarel, look, looking like a very devastating striker in this division who's improved a lot since his first UFC appearance. Ariane Carnelosi defeats Estela Nunez. Rear Jake choke first round. Uh, Carnelosi, the busier fighter, looked like she was on pace to win the fight anyways and uh, ends up being a submission. I feel bad for Nunez because I think she's been under UFC contract for like two and a half years in her first fight. I think she uh, had a USADA violation. So unfortunate for her to start her UFC career this way. But uh, a good card overall. I, I enjoyed it, and I just thought that there were two really strong examples there of uh, of judging. And for my picks on this card, I think I went 0-4. But, it's a little Barry Horror with time, pat on the back. I posted a Bellator Super Dart on Twitter before the Bellator card, 52-1 to 1 odds, and it hit. 
So if you're following me on social media, and if you watch the pre-show with myself and Dan Tom, a lot of good fight night nuggets for you if you're trying to, uh, to do something in the betting space. 52 to 1, that's the biggest one I've ever hit by far in terms of a parlay in, in this. Uh, so hopefully you saw it and you were able to get in on it because, uh, yeah, not, not pretty, 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 pretty good, as the great Larry David would say. Let's talk about that Bellator card a little bit, shall we? I think it was Bellator 268. Let me pull up the results here and uh, just talk about some of the fights. Uh, Nemkov versus Angliskis was an interesting fight in the main event because Angliskis tagged Nemkov earlier. He hit him with a big shot. And I think that if Angliskis was a little bit of a better defensive wrestler, he might have been able to, to keep this one on the feet and, and do more damage while Nem- Nemkov was rattled. Nemkov, kudos to him. He's the champion for a reason, recovered very quickly, was able to take down Angliskis and impose his will on him for basically the remainder of the fight. Looked like a dominant champion, but... The co-main event, Corey Anderson defeats Ryan Bader, knocks him out in under a minute. This is important because when these two guys face each other, Anderson and Nemkov in the finals of the Bellator Light Heavyweight World Grand Prix with a million dollars and the title on the line, if Anderson hits Nemkov the way that Angliskis did and rocks him, it's going to be a different story because Anderson's not going to get taken down as easily as Angliskis was. Angliskis is just not as much of a seasoned fighter as Corey Anderson. hasn't fought the level of competition of a Corey Anderson. Corey Anderson looked great. And speaking of Corey Anderson, again, the TSN MMA Show interview edition, Corey Anderson is on this week's show. But man, did he look, look good. And I had mentioned on social media that this is just a guy who's fighting with a new freedom. It just seems like he doesn't have that pressure on him. And he, uh, he confirmed it as much when I spoke. But uh, shout out to Corey Anderson. I thought he looked great. And I think I, I want to see what the line is for this fight. My guess is it's going to be Nemkov around minus 130, minus 140, if I had to, to guess the opener for Nemkov versus Anderson. I could be way off, but that's uh, where I, I think it's going to be at. I mean, Anderson might end up being the favorite after that performance. Who knows? But uh, that's going to be a great high-level fight. Those are two of the best light heavyweights in the world, for sure. And it's funny. I, I mentioned that uh, Anderson's fighting with this freedom, and he looks great against Bader. And somebody responds and says, oh, he's just fighting worse competition now. Well... I mean, are you familiar with Ryan Bader? Do you know who he is? Like, this is a guy who was on a five-fight win streak in the UFC. He was about to probably fight for the title in the UFC. Gets signed by Bellator, becomes a two-division champion. Corey Anderson's a guy who's beaten Jan Blachowicz and Glover Teixeira, although he more recently lost to Jan Blachowicz. But Corey Anderson's been fighting, at least in terms of the active light heavyweights, the best guys in the world. Period. So don't take anything away from Corey Anderson. I think that's just, that's not acceptable. It's, Corey Anderson's a great fighter. And he has been for a long time. But I think the biggest issue with him in the UFC was consistency. He just was unable to find that consistency that you need to, to really establish yourself as a contender. It's what Glover Teixeira has right now. He's winning big fights consecutively against tough opponents. I don't think Anderson was able to do that. And I think that's what hindered him from getting that title shot in the uh, heavyweight division. Although I think that had he stayed in the UFC, he would have gotten it sometime soon. I think that he, right now, would be in the mix of those top three guys of Glover, Jan Blachowicz. I think Corey Anderson's right there. I think Vadim Nemkov, I mean, he's right there too. Vadim Nemkov's a fantastic He might be able to beat all of them for all I know. I personally think that if you take Magomed Ankalaev, he's favored against all these guys. Maybe maybe not against Nemkov, but possibly. Let's see how Ankalaev looks. Let's see if he makes me look smart or, or looks look dumb after his next fight. Next weekend, UFC 267 on Fight Island. That's one I'm going to see him versus Volkan Uzdemir. So uh, those are the big fights from uh, Bellator. Uh, there was also Brent Primus beating Ben Henderson. That was a great fight because those guys were just so evenly matched. They're such similar fighters. But kudos to Brent Primus. He ends up getting it. And shout out to uh, Lance Gibson Jr. Had a rough first round against Raymond Pena. 
would not be denied, ends up getting the finish in the second round. And if you, you were curious what my Bellator parlay was, it was nothing crazy. It was just, you take all of the big favorites. You had Maria Henderson, Sullivan Cauley, Jalen Bates, Lance Gibson Jr., Sumiko Inaba, and Vadim Nemkov. All of them were like minus 450 or higher favorites. Took them all inside the distance and parlayed them. And that was 52 to 1. There it is. You throw a super dart and you get a super result. If you would have bet 10 bucks on that, you would have won $524. So, again, important to follow me on social media, to watch the uh, preview show with Dan Tom and I. And in 2022, we might uh, start doing it a little bit differently. Show, But uh, stay tuned for any sort of news on that. Uh, for now, we're going to continue to rock and roll and, uh, and hit big picks for you. Let's talk about this weekend's UFC Fight Night card. Paulo Costa versus Marvin Vittori. I haven't made my picks for this just yet. This main event, Costa versus Vittori, is an interesting one. Because I feel like right now, we just do not know what we're getting with Paulo Costa. He's coming back off of a year-plus layoff. He last fought September 27, 2020. And before that, he had another year-plus layoff. He had fought August 17, 2019. And then before that, it was another year-plus layoff fighting July of 2018 Uriah Hall. So this guy is fighting once a year with layoffs of one year or more each time. Very, very difficult to assess where they're at in their career when they're having these long layoffs. Only has one loss officially on his record. He did lose on the Ultimate Fighter Brazil seven plus years ago. I won't hold that against him because it counts as, a, as an exhibition. It's not on his official. But he had won 13 fights in a row before fighting Israel. He was looking better and better each fight. But let's look at who these wins are against. You got Gareth McClellan not in the UFC anymore. Oluwali Bangbosi in the UFC. Johnny Hendricks not in the UFC. Or barely competing anymore. Uriah Hall has looked good recently, but uh, coming off a loss to Marvin Vittori, who going to be Costa's opponent. Yoel Romero, no longer in the UFC, looked a little bit sluggish in his first Bellator fight. That was a war against Yoel Romero. That, that, that's the kind of fight that can change your career trajectory because of the damage you take in a fight like that. And then TKO against Israel Adesanya in a fight where Paulo Costa said that he, he drank wine the night before because he couldn't sleep and was like hungover during the fight. So, I mean, if that's the case, I can understand why you would lose to the best middleweight in the world. But now, you know, the guy's been training for a year plus. How, how many improvements he's made, I guess we're going to see against Marvin Vittori. I think the reason why Marvin Vittori is the favorite here at minus 150 is you've you got the known versus the unknown. And I, I, I don't like to bet against the unknown a lot of the time if you're, if you're taking a big favorite like Vittori. I do like the over in this fight. It's over four and a half is plus 100. About That might end up being a TSN edge pick for me. Um, or potentially, fight goes to the decision. You can get for as high as plus one fifty. I, I, I do think that this fight goes the distance. You know, Marvin Vittori hasn't been finished since early in his career, and is a very durable fighter. He saw against Israel, taking some big shots, just continued to walk forward. And Paulo Costa is able to land big shots, and he's he's also shown durability. I know he lost to Israel, but um, prior to that, showed that he was a very durable fighter. So, you know, hadn't been finished before that. So. Just an interesting fight, and I think I think these guys are going to push each other. I, I do lean Vittori if I have to make a pick in this fight. It's just a straight pick, not taking the odds into consideration. But uh, if I were to take anything in this fight, it's the over 4.5. Grant Dawson against Ricky Glenn. Dawson a minus 400 favorite in some spots. I don't know if that's warranted. I think that Glenn has looked really good in his late career trajectory and uh, at, at this bigger weight class. I think this is a total dogger pass, but Grant Dawson has looked great. And uh, 
for a straight up pick, I would take Grant, da Grant Dawson, but I think the value is in the underdog in Glenn. And uh, I like the over in this one too, but it's it's juiced up all the way to minus 137. Goes to the decision you can get for as low as minus 112. That's probably about where it should be. I do think this one goes to a decision, but uh, both guys very tough. Glenn wins in round three. What does that pay? Glenn wins in round three is plus 2,900. That is one I might take a look at because we've seen that Dawson does tend to slow down as fights go on and that Glenn has shown a, a really good gas tank. So that eh, might be might be worth a dark throw. We'll see. Jessica Rose Clark minus 145. Jocelyn Edwards plus 125. I like Jessica Rose Clark here. She might end up being in a parlay for me, but uh, the problem with Rose Clark is she's just not that active. Like when was her last fight? She last fought again more than a year ago. It's a very similar kind of thing to Paulo Costa. She's like one a year, once a year fighter in recent years. So we'll see. But I, I would I would favor her against Edwards in this fight. Not a not a strong lean just yet, but in terms of the odds at minus 140. Sung Woo Choi minus 280. Alex Caceres plus 225. Choi looked very good in his last fight against Julian Rosa. Alex Caceres is just so hit or miss for me, but whenever he's in these spots as a big underdog, he's got the value, and he, show, he shows out sometimes in these situations. So this is a tricky one. I'm going to stay away. Francisco Trinaldo, minus 125. Dwight Grant, plus 105. I think that the right person is favored in this fight in Trinaldo. Another kind of stay away from me, because as Trinaldo gets older, I worry about how much, how, you know, how much longer he can stick around, but he's proven that he can stick around in these fights. Grant, a guy who does not throw a ton of volume, Neither does Trinaldo, though, so this is another stay away. I do think that Trinaldo might might have the better gas tank of these two, even though he's kind of in in the later stage of his career. Uh, th that one's a pass for me. Uh, Nick Negumarianu, minus 220. Ike Villanueva, plus 180. Negumarianu looked very good in his last fight, but uh, this is another kind of dog or pass situation for me, or, or just a pass in general. Uh... The over two and a half rounds at plus 190 it doesn't bother me. Fight goes through the decision plus 240. That's that's one I might look at. Both guys are pretty durable. Let's see how that goes. Jong Young Park against Gregory Rodriguez. Even money. Don't have a really strong lean on that one. Same with Tabitha Ricci versus Maria de Oliveira Neta. I don't know. I know Neta was on the contender series. I think she lost to Marina Rodriguez trying to get into the promoter. Ricci didn't look great in her last fight, but was fighting up a division against a tough opponent. Uh, in Manon Fioro, who we discussed earlier in the show. Another one I'd kind of stay away from. I don't know enough about the underdog. Jay, Her Jay Herbert, minus 180, comma, worthy, plus 155. I think the odds here are about where they should be as well, but what's the worthy by KO prop? Worthy by KO is plus 350. That might be where I would go with this one. Because worthy has heavy hands and, and Herbert. Uh, we've seen him on wobbly legs before. I mean, you can most remember his last fight against uh, was it his last fight? I guess it was the one against Trinaldo, maybe? Where Dan Hardy was doing commentary and was yelling at Herb Dean after the fight for letting it go, go on for too long. Jeff Molina I like in this fight. He's minus 165. I like the value with him. He's a guy that I just think is a very high fight IQ. Young guy who's going to continue to get better. I like Molina here. I'm looking for somebody to parlay him with. It might end up being a Loriano Staropoli who's fighting later on the card. Um, he's fighting against Jamie Pickett, who's a plus 190. I might do a Steropoli Molina parlay uh, as a TSN pick, so just a heads up on that if uh, you, you hear this before my edge picks go out. Uh, Livia Hinata uh, Souza, minus 125. Random Marcos, plus 105. I can see this being a fight where Marcos ends up getting takedowns and, and wins a decision here, but uh, that, this one's another pass for me. There you go. That's the card. 
Uh, I'm eager to see how it plays out because uh, I think the main event has big ramifications in the middle division. The winner of this fight is going to stay in the mix. And if Whitaker ends up winning against uh, Israel, I'm sure Israel will probably get a, a, an instant rematch. But uh, I think that these are important fights at the, the top of the middleweight division. Got a lot of players right now. You got Brunson and Cannon you're facing off as well in the next little bit. I think the winner of that fight will get the next title shot if Israel retains against Robert Whitaker. But this fight, the winner of this fight is going to just be right there. The Contender Series this past week had some uh, some really solid fighters, but also a lot of really big favorites. So it's hard to uh, glean what you're gonna what you're gonna get out of these fighters when they are, um, I guess, not the quality that you're necessarily accustomed to in opponent. You know, Johnny Parsons gets the win over Solomon Renfro. That's the one I want to talk about because. I can see Parsons winning rounds two and three. Again, based on the scoring criteria, he was landing the bigger, heavy, heavier, more damaging blows in, in those two rounds. I think Renfro was busier. It's another situation like that fight between Emiev and Roberts that we discussed earlier, where even though Emiev outlanded Roberts, Roberts was landing the bigger, more damaging strikes. And I think that was the case here with Parsons in rounds two and three. But I thought that round one was a pretty clear 10-8 for Renfro. Like, I, I don't know what else you're looking for if you're a judge to score that at 10-8. I was shocked that none of the judges scored that at 10-8 because Parsons was getting pieced up on the feet, wobbled, fight was close to being finished. You had all three Ds that a judge looks for in the 10-8 rounds, which is uh, damage, dominance, duration. Duration, maybe not quite as much, but as long as those two first criteria are filled, especially the damage criteria, I think that you have the makings of a 10-8 round there. I thought that what Renfro did in that first round was certainly enough to get a 10-8, which would have made this fight a draw, but... Parsons, you, you got to give this guy credit because he took a, a, a massive beating in that first round, came back, was never really out of the fight after that uh, barrage in the first round, and was landing big strikes to Renfro. He was, he was definitely the fighter landing the bigger shots on the feet, the more damaging strikes. Renfro, I thought that Parsons won round two. I thought that the third round was a little bit closer. In fact, you, you probably could have given all three rounds to Renfro. And that's why I think a lot of people have a, a problem with this scorecard is, you know, if you were to go by pride judging, Renfro wins that fight, like, hands down. 98% of the judges would give Renfro that fight under pride scoring rules, but that's not how fights are scored. Not how fights are scored. We need to keep in mind always the judging criteria when you're looking at scoring fights. But in doing so, I think that Renfro did enough, especially under the, uh, the new unified rules and the new criteria to win a 10-8. I just thought that he he did everything that you would want for somebody to give them a 10-8. That's what surprised me the most about, out, about that decision. Not the winner as much as the fact that Renfro didn't get a 10-8 round. The, that, that part is more surprising to me than Parsons winning because I think that if they were going to give 10-9 rounds across the board, you can make a case that Parsons wins that fight. But I just thought that the first round was a pretty clear 10-8, which would have made that fight a draw. And maybe both guys would have won contracts in that case. I don't know what Dana White's issue is with the younger fighters. He keeps having this bias against younger fighters in the contender series. Like, if you want, you say you're looking for future champions. Like, if you're going to get a guy like Renfro who looks UFC ready, and even though he's only 24 years old, or the guy the previous week, I think his name was was a Christian Rodriguez, or Christian Christian Rodriguez or Christian, I'm trying to remember his name, but uh, I mean that guy. That guy was UFC ready, even though he's young. Like, that's a guy that you can build into a future champion with the right matchmaking. You can give them tough matchups, but it's a guy you can build. And I feel the same way with Renfro. I, I think that they really 
maybe maybe they have Renfro ready to go for a future fight because I think that he's the type of guy you can call on short notice and he'd take a fight to get into the UFC. And same with the other the other individual, Christian. I think that you could call him on short notice, but for whatever reason, Dana White has this aversion to signing these younger guys that I think are the ones that you want to sign if you're trying to build future champions. Like, if you want to build a future champion, get these guys while they're still young and they look UFC-ready, because you can build them up. You can build them up. So I, I don't understand that. I might ask Dana about that when I talk to him um, in two weeks. Because that uh, it might even be next week I'm talking to him because he's going to be at Fight Island. I'm just very curious about that. I would love to know what his thought process is on that. And you know me, I ask questions when I'm curious about the answer to a question. Those are the questions I ask. Even though it's not entirely relevant to UFC 267, Contender Series is still going on, and I would just love to find out his mindset on that. Uh, Piero Rodriguez defeats Valeska Machado. Um, I thought that Rodriguez just looked like the hammer, and Machado looked like the nail in that fight. You know, people disagreed with me, but I, I just thought that Piero was just in control of that fight for a lot of it. Um, I thought that Machado did enough to win that second round. But it, it looked almost like a sparring situation where you've got a fighter that is preparing for a fight and is just doing doing more in there. And that, that's what I saw from, from Rodriguez. I'm, I'm glad she got a contract. I think she looks UFC ready. for. And I, I don't disagree with Dana White that Machado is somebody that probably belongs in the UFC too because she was hanging in tough. And I, I really think the world of Rodriguez, I thought she looked great. So if you're going to be able to hang in there with a fighter of that caliber, I think that you're probably ready to go in the UFC as well. I'm really glad that Caio Boraglio got a contract. Uh, he beat Jesse Murray. And I just thought Boraglio, by beating somebody as good as Aaron Jeffrey, should have gotten a contract in the first place. Like, Aaron Jeffrey is a UFC-caliber fighter. There's nothing else that I need to see from Aaron Jeffrey to know that he could go into the UFC and win fights tomorrow. Even though Boraglio bested him, I still think that he is somebody that can win fights in the UFC. But Boraglio looked great in that fight against Aaron Jeffrey and looked even better yesterday against Jesse Murray. Murray not as not nowhere near the caliber of an Aaron Jeffrey in my opinion. So uh, I'm glad that Baralio got a contract. I love watching his fighting style. I think that he's a dynamic striker. I actually think he could do well at 205, honestly. But uh, if he wants to go to 185, his his style works there as well. Armin Petrosian, this guy looked great at 205, but I would love to see him move down to 185. That guy weighed in at like 202 or something. Uh, I I I thought that fight was going to go as it went. I thought that Kolev was really going to push him early with his, his judo, land takedowns, and it was going to be up to Petrosian to eventually get the fight back to the feet where I thought he was going to have a market advantage, and that is exactly what happened. Pedro Falcao defeats James Barnes. I agreed with what Dana White said as to why he did not give Falcao the contract. Barnes, 39 years old. You expect a guy like Falcao, who's a 5-1 to favorite or whatever it was in that fight, to, uh, to really dominate, and I don't think that that's what happened in that fight. I understand the, th- the thought process on not giving him a contract, even though it is harder to get finishes in the lighter weight class, and he was able to get a finish late in that fight. Uh, I-, I agreed with the decision not to give him a contract. All right, there you have it. There's the recap for the Dana White Contender Series. Mostly I wanted to talk about Parsons versus Renfro, because I thought that that was one that a lot of people disagreed with the decision on, and I, you know, I-, I disagreed with it too. But I-, I see where the judges were coming from, at least. I, the one thing I just didn't see is why that wasn't a 10-8 round. That's the part that I would love to pick a judge's brain on because I think they've had everything that you would look for in a 10-8 round. All right, some news and notes. Caitlin Chukagian facing Jennifer Maya on January 15th. It's a, a rematch, an interesting rematch of that. I, I like Chukagian in that fight. We'll see, uh, we'll see um, how that one looks once uh, going in January. Where are these events going to be? Who knows? Joaquin Buckley against Abdul Razak Al-Hassan added to the January 15th event. As well, that's great matchmaking. I can't wait to see that. Al-Hazan looked great as a middleweight. Buckley is a smaller middleweight as well. 
Both guys, dynamic strikers. Eager to see that one. Might lean Al Hassan in that one, honestly. I'd like to see what the odds are when they... when they. But if Al Hassan's an underdog, and I believe he will be, I'll take the KO prop on that one. What else do we got? Is Fedor fighting this weekend? I think he is. Has there been a more quiet Fedor fight week than, than this week? When is that fight? Yeah, that's... Everything is happening in the morning on, on Saturday. You've got Fedor versus Timothy Johnson. That, that fight starts at 11 a.m. It's in Moscow. You've got Glory Collision is happening at that same time in the Netherlands. And you've got Costa versus Vittori. Like, you would think these would be back-to-back-to-back events. They're all like, kind of happening at the same time. Fedor versus Timothy Johnson. That is an interesting fight. And you've also got Vitaly Minikov taking on Saeed Salma. I don't know much about Salma. And Usman Nurmagomedov is on the card. Anatoly Tokov. It seems like they're just loading up the, uh, the Russian prospects for this one. Fedor versus Timothy Johnson is an interesting fight. What are the odds on that one? Because I would take Timothy Johnson if he's a big underdog in that one. No, it's even money. Oh, that's a tough one then. It's a three-round fight. I think Fedor is going to be the better striker. But the durability is a big question mark for me at this point in time. You know, I, I wasn't thrilled with the matchup. But as it gets closer... I can see it being a fun one. I can certainly see it being a fun fight. Let's see how it goes. Eager to see that one. But yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are talking about Fedor Fight Week, which is, uh, which is odd. Any other big news that we can look at? Oh yeah, there's one big story that I really want to touch on that I, I would be hitting myself if I, uh, if I forgot about. The UFC has put out a memo to fighters and managers that starting in, on the 8th of November, foreign fighters from outside of the U.S. are going to need to be fully vaccinated and provide proof that they have taken one of the seven World Health Organization approved vaccines. What are the seven health organizations? What are they? Is the Sputnik vaccine count? Like, I'm being serious here. I'm wondering if the Sputnik vaccine counts. No. That is really interesting. Unless I'm reading this wrong. But if the Sputnik vac- vaccine doesn't count, that's going to be a real problem for Russian fighters. That's very interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into that. I think a lot. If you're based in Russia, what vaccine would you be getting? You'd be getting the Sputnik vaccine. But uh, yeah, if you want to enter the U.S. by land, on water, if you're gonna take a boat, <laughs> like there's no way to get in to the U.S. to the U.S. without being fully vaccinated. And I know for a fact that there are Canadian fighters that do not have their vaccination. I've spoken to some of them. And they have a decision to make. Are you going to let this, whatever your vaccine hesitancy is, get in the way of doing what you have trained your whole life to do? The, the thing that you love to do, your, your, your source of income, your probably primary source of income. I think it's a, it's a very interesting question. I, and I've been talking to a lot of the Canadian fighters. I don't want to name any names. They've got a big decision to make. Like... I don't, I'm not the type of guy that's going to talk about, you know, whether or not someone should get a vaccine. Like, that's not none of my business. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of different things in place that you get that you get from being vaccinated, whether it's the ability to travel on airplanes, whether it's the ability to enter certain venues, whether it's the ability to travel to certain countries, as is this situation, that would make it so that financially it's not a good decision to not be vaccinated. And uh, that, that seems to be the case here. 
like personally, I would encourage people to get vaccinated. That's just my own my own viewpoint on this. But uh, if somebody doesn't get it, I, I get you know I spoke about this with my, with my wife. A lot of people are more afraid of getting the vaccine than they are getting COVID, and that's why they choose to do this. Now, the societal ramifications of that, I don't want to get into. But that if if that's your mindset, perhaps. You need to reconsider if this if your career is mixed martial arts, you need to travel to another country in order to compete. Although Dana White, when asked about it after the contender series, says we might be doing a lot more events on Fight Island. He says they have a big plan for Fight Island going forward. He wants to unveil that in two weeks when the UFC is in New York. He's going to Abu Dhabi, obviously, next week for UFC 267, and he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about um, the future of Abu Dhabi and Fight Island, and then he wants to unveil those plans in November coincidentally the week where this goes into effect but uh yeah a lot of a lot of fighters from outside of i i saw two fighters i think it was mike grundy if i'm not mistaken and um the guy who won on the contender series uh on week seven of the contender series whose name is escaping me week seven of the contender series let me look him up the guy who missed weight but got the contract either way he said he's gonna get the vaccine now as a result of this so Whatever is happening here, it's going to work on certain fighters that need to need work. They need to come to the U.S. in order to compete. If all the events in 2022 are going to be the apex for the fight nights as well, I don't know if that's the case or not. I don't know what their plan is. But the majority of UFC events historically have taken place in the U.S. And I don't think that that's changing anytime soon. The UFC aren't going to travel to Abu Dhabi every weekend. Even for... 50% of the weeks, they're not going to go to Abu Dhabi. It's just not the way their broadcast deals work. You can't, you can't do events at 2 a.m. local time all the time in order to fulfill your, contra- your broadcasting contract obligations. It's just not going to work that way. So these fighters from outside of the U.S. have a, a, a very important choice to make as to whether or not it's worth it for them to not get the vaccine if it means fighting once a year in Abu Dhabi as opposed to being able to, to take fights whenever they're offered. Because if you're a matchmaker and you say to the matchmaker, listen, I haven't gotten my vaccination. I, I need to fight on Fight Island or outside of the U.S. There's only a certain amount of slots that the matchmakers have to fill. To fill and they also want to get people that are willing to fight on shorter notice. They need to fill spots. Their job, if you're a matchmaker, the thing that's keeping you up at night is filling spots. And I know this because I used to book guests for a, talk, a daily talk show. And when I was booking guests for a daily talk show, if we had three of our four, four blocks filled the day before a show, I was having a lot of trouble sleeping. And if I if it was the weekend and I only had two shows of the five booked, at least somewhat booked, partially booked, I was losing sleep on the weekends. The, the matchmaker job is really difficult. Because if the UFC are doing events, 48 events a year, and you're talking about, especially during this era, this age, filling 13 to 15 slots, that's about 600, 700 fights a year. Which means you need 1,400 fighters. Like, like 1,400 different fighters are going to be competing. Not 1,400 different fighters, but there are 1,400 slots to fill. That's probably the best way to put it. 1,400 slots to fill over the course of a year. So if a fighter is saying, well, I, I can't compete on this night because of X, Y, Z, unless it's like injury-related or something that really is keeping them out, matchmakers are going to, they're, they're moving on. The train is going to keep rolling. So these fighters have a very difficult choice to make as to whether or not they want to make themselves eligible to compete in the U.S. That's basically the best, best way of putting it. If you are, unless you move stateside before November 8th, 
which if you are if you're not a landed citizen, if you don't have a green card or you don't have a work visa that is valid for an entire year, you're only allowed to be in the US for 6 months of the year. You are going to have a very important choice to make about your fighting future. And listen, I, I don't I, one way or another, I don't really it's, it's your your choice, like believe me, I'm not trying to butt in here. I'm just I'm just laying it out based on what this memo says, which is as of November 8th, you're no longer able to get into the U.S. without a full without being fully vaccinated. We've got Canadian fighters that are booked up until the end of the year. So, what they do from here, I think, is very important. It's a very important decision for them because I think that I think that a lot of people, once they decide on something and they they plant their flag, they don't like pulling their flag out of the ground. But a lot of people are going to have to do that if they want to continue to fight in the UFC. At, at U.S.-based accounts, you saw U.S.-based uh, events, which, again, is the majority of the UFC's events historically. And when I say majority, I'm talking 80 percent of the events in the U.S. are uh, sorry, the events take place in the U.S. If I, I'm thinking it's eight, probably in that range. I'm talking pre-pandemic times when they were booking globally. I'd say it was at least 80 percent. Might be wrong on that, but that would be my my guess. So, yeah, big story. And uh, I think it's uh, a story that we're going to continue to, fo- to track and follow. I've been talking to a lot of the different Canadian fighters about it. And uh, I just, I'm eager to see what ends up happening with them because this is uh, certainly something that is going to be, is going to have a big impact on the UFC's business. And the memo has said, you know, to be clear, it's not a UFC policy. The UFC have been pretty clear about whether or not they think athletes should be vaccinated or not, they have not really rendered an opinion on that. They've said it's up to the, it's up to the fighter. These are technically independent contractors. I guess they can do what they want. But at the same time, they now need to enforce this policy because it's a government policy. It's Well, they can't even enforce it. It's like immigration is going to enforce it. Like, you get to the airport, if you don't have vaccine status, they're going to they're turn you away. In fact, they're not going to let you get on a plane in the first place if you're from Canada. I think as of October 22nd which is in two days, I believe, is when that goes. So, yeah, big, big story. Big, big story in the world of mixed markets. I think that it has massive ramifications on a lot of the uh, UF athletes. And Bellator's athletes, any athletes in mixed martial arts as a whole. Like, if you're the CFFC, you've got Johan Linus and Aaron Jeffrey as your champions. I don't know what their status is, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens. All right, there we have it. I think that's uh, that, that covers all the bases. Uh, oh, also, I do want to congratulate Jason House, who has signed his 100th UFC fighter of the UFC in David Onama, who's fighting this weekend against Mason. Jason House is just a grinder. This guy works so hard. And uh, he's he's told his story to me before. I, I believe we, uh, I think I, I think I shared that interview when it happened, where he talked about how he used to work at Outback Steakhouse. He gave himself two years to get a fighter signed to a major promotion if he was going to continue to be, to be an agent, I think he was like living on basically ramen noodles, working at an outback, like, you know, working so that he could maintain his dream of becoming a mixed martial arts manager. And I think it was like two or three days or something, basically the week that he was going to enforce his deadline of two years, one of his fighters got signed to the WEC, and now here we are. He has a champion in Brandon Moreno, and he has 100 fighters signed to the UFC. So shout out to Iridium Sports and Jason House and all the folks that work for Iridium Sports, including Canada's own Ed Cap. One of the unsung heroes of uh, Iridium Sports who uh, books all their interviews. One of the more proactive people in this space. So shout out to them. And shout out to you for listening to the TSN MMA show. We'll have the interview edition up on Thursday morning. 
TSN Edge Picks will be up probably tonight or tomorrow as well. Thank you for following me on social media. You can follow me on Instagram also at, at abronstetter. I don't have as many followers there, so would love to uh, have your patronage there as well. And please subscribe, rate, and review this show. We'll be back next week with uh, Bazooka Joe returning from the Netherlands. We will we'll recap a packed weekend of combat sports and also preview UFC 267, a, a massive card, two title shot, two titles on the line, one of which is an interim title, and a lot of really good prospects on that card. We'll talk about that next week. Well, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening to the TSN MMA Show. For all the latest UFC news, visit tsn.ca slash UFC.